Good morning, everyone. You are listening to the Master Gardener Hour, a one-hour show where we talk to garden professionals and gardeners from all walks of life, all growing a variety of different plants. My name is Kate Copsey, and I am the host of the show. If you have any questions about something in your garden, please post it on our Facebook page, and maybe we can answer the question on the air. This morning, we are going to be talking to Joellen Myers-Sharp about public gardens. Good morning, Joellen. Good morning, Kate. Yes, and you're in Indianapolis, where we met many years ago. Um, and uh, yes, and I know they've got a beautiful park in Indianapolis. Um, but I know that almost every town and city has some sort of public park. So let's start maybe with the idea of putting space apart for the general public use and how different parks have different character depending on where they are. Um, so when, when exactly did this, um, the public park, park phase really start? Well, it, most of the, a lot of the credit is given to various designers, um, the Olmsted brothers, George Kessler, Dan Kiley, uh, around in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. It was really the United States um, participation in what's called the City Beautiful Movement, uh, which was just that philosophy that sections of land should be set aside for people to just enjoy being in nature. It could have been, you know, just a bench in a small pocket park somewhere or to the more elaborate parks that we think of, like Central Park in New York or Garfield Park in Indianapolis. And I suppose, um, you know, the bigger parks came on a little later. Um, So the different styles of gardens, I know that the Victorians, for instance, had um, lots of greenhouse type things. Was that the same type of um, conservatory idea? Was that around the same time that 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 type of thing started along with the, the general public parks? Well, I do. I think a lot depended, like you said, on the size of the park, also what kinds of resources a city uh, may have been able to put toward some type of beautification effort like that. I mean, we can look at Franklin Park in Columbus, Ohio, for instance, or um, Como Park up in Minneapolis, you know, which have very elaborate and beautiful conservatories. Also, there's a Garfield Park in Chicago that has a lovely conservatory, and the Garfield Park in Indianapolis has a conservatory. So I think that they, you know, had to have had some foresight and the resources to be able to build a conservatory because they were pretty expensive um, to construct. Uh, you know, they still are. So it would, you know, it just cost money to put those in. Oh, yes. Um, and I know that um, the Pittsburgh area, they've got a very inner city park, um, which, um, you know, is, is a beautiful little park. Um, but are most of these actually inner city or are some of them outside the city? Well, if we're talking about parks um, as opposed to, say, gardens, you know, public gardens or, or you know, something like that, most of the parks are in cities. Uh, you know, you have state parks and national parks, which are beyond usually city limits. They can be everything from 
you know, Yosemite to Glacier National Park or the National Lakeshore that we have in Indiana. Um, and so they are usually outside of urban areas. And, but there are private gardens and parks in urban areas and outside of urban areas. A lot of the private gardens that we have now were the estates, like maybe the summer estates of, you know, industrialists or philanthropists. And uh, so their property was uh, developed and made into a, a public park or a private park where you pay to get into maybe the house and gardens and and so do um for instance um, i know private estates and things like that that open for tours and i know there are some um arboretums um do they count as public gardens as well if they're an arboretum or do some of them cross that barrier and they have kind of the, the formal gardens plus an, a more um, native arboretum type area with trees and that type of thing well in the Visitor's Guide to American Gardens, which was published by Cool Springs Press a couple years ago that I was able, you know, that I worked on and wrote, um, we did include Arboretum because, for one thing, if you're interested in what trees and shrubs are going to look like, say especially what a mature uh, tree or a mature shrub is going to look like, an Arboretum is the best place to go to sort of see what that looks like in nature, and then you have an idea of you know, how big it might get in your landscape, if it's going to be too big or too small. But I would think that anything like that, you know, a botanical garden, for instance, is different than Arboretum. A botanical garden usually has a collection of certain kinds of plants. So, you know, we might have a, a botanical garden that just has, like, all magnolias or a lot of magnolias. That might be the plant that they specialize in, or camellias. Or maybe there might be one, a botanical garden, say in Denver, uh, that specializes in uh, plants for that type of climate, more arid and uh, fast-draining plants. So, the you know, there are just lots of choices, I think, for people to visit and, you know, explore things that are of particular interest to them. And are people actually still constructing new ones, or are they can, kind of because of, I, I guess, um, economies and things like that, um, are, are all these kind of very well established from maybe the 1920s and before? Well, there are some new ones. Uh, but for instance, probably one of the newest ones is in Des Moines, the Greater Des Moines uh, Botanical Garden, which I'm going to say... This has been around maybe for 20 years. I'm sort of guessing on that. Uh, but the, it's been through different machinations under different ownerships. And in the last three years, a private group has taken over the botanical garden. You know, there's a board of directors. They've done a lot of fundraising. They've been able to raise millions of dollars to sort of refurbish it, give it a purpose. And um, it's you know it has like right now it has the largest coleus collection in the country <clears throat> under glass as well, and they're also in, uh, building some external gardens, and that work has only been done I would say in the last three years. So there is still work going on in gardens. Um, there are fewer newer ones coming on than there were probably in the 20s and 30s and 40s when there was uh, you know more interest in that. 
And even after the Second World War, there was interest in, in developing plants as soldier, or, or gardens. And then soldiers returned, you know, from the war, got married, had babies, had kids, you know, and so they were always looking for ways to explore nature with, fa- with families. Yeah, um, and so I, I guess um, the public parks, they're part of a, a tourism idea. Um, so how much, um, do you know how, how much they um, actually contribute to the tourism of an area versus maybe some of the other areas and why, why people should maybe um, try them? Well, Kate, I'm sorry. I don't have any dollar numbers to, you know, give a value on the, on what uh, gardens bring into a community. You know, some is probably going to depend on whether there's admission fees for the gardens or the arboretum or whether they're free, uh, what kinds of activities they may have inside the gardens. Uh, But, um, you know, I personally think that it's fun just to go and see what's there. Uh, you can just learn about plant combinations. You can learn a lot of them may have be participants in, I think there are 40-some participants in various All-America Selection or National Garden Bureau programs, which will have, you know, large plantings of new plants, for instance, you know, new annuals that are going to be introduced in the next few years or who that are fairly new or new perennials and things like that. So, if, if you're interested in gardening, it just seems like a natural that you would want to explore wherever you might be. Like I was in Denver in October, and we did go to the Denver Botanical Garden. Um, you know, I go to Chicago pretty regularly for the Chicago Botanic Garden, uh, and, you know, just it's just kind of what you do when you go to that town. And, and do most of them have websites so that it's easy, you know, if you, if you are visiting some, somewhere, you can put in X City Botanic Garden and it will generally belch one out that's relatively close to that town? Right. There is a, a website of the American Public Garden Association, which would list all of the, you know, members of that not-for-profit group uh, it is, uh, I want to say it's publicgardens.org. Um, I'm checking it out here just to make sure. But um, it also, you know, would have a, a directory that you could search so that if you knew you were going to be in Pasadena, what would be there? Yeah, it's publicgardens.org. And <clears throat> that would be a good starting place, I think. Uh, you know, in my book, in the... Um, Visitor's Guide to American Gardens, there are more than 400 gardens in the United States and Canada that are included in that book. Oh, wow. That's a lot, a lot of gardens around the place. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and do most of them have websites of their own um, that belong to the American Public Garden Association? Or do you find little, little small ones, um, quirky ones that maybe are a public garden that you have to be in the know before you can find them? Well, not all public gardens are going to be members of the American Public Garden Association, but many of the public gardens do have websites. Uh, and working on the book, I was surprised at how many, um, you know, had sort of hard-to-find websites. Sometimes the garden website may be operated by, like, a friends group. Uh, so they actually, you know, like anything that about that garden would be listed under like the friends group of that garden rather than by that garden's name. 
But, you know, Google is a wonderful search engine, and, you know, if you can't, that's what I would do is I would say I was going to be in, you know, Madison, Wisconsin, and plug in Madison, Wisconsin Public Gardens and see what you get. Yeah, um, and you know, I think we we better go for our first commercial break here, Joellen. Um, okay. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, and we will be back, everyone, talking about the nation's public gardens. And um, when we come back, we'll talk a little about why you should visit and what you can get out of a public garden. The Master Gardener Hour will be back in just a moment. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Today's consumers find themselves faced with a greater variety of choices than ever before, both in the food they eat and the information they receive about that food. Feedstuff's FoodLink was created to provide you with a balanced source of information for making decisions about your family's balanced diet. Visit FeedstuffsFoodLink.com to learn about your food directly from the source, the people who work every day to provide it. FeedstuffsFoodLink.com, connecting farm to fork. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to the Master Gardener Hour. Remember, you can catch up with us on Facebook at the Master Gardener Hour. And if you miss any shows, you can find archives at americaswebradio.com webpages. You can find us on iTunes and you can find us on Stitchers. This morning, we are talking America's Public Gardens uh, with Joellen Myers-Sharp. And we talked a little about the public gardens in general, Joelle, and so let's talk about um, a little about what type of thing should we expect to see when we um, when we get to a public garden? Um, what type of things should we find out before we actually go there, for instance, besides well, directions? <laughs> one of the things is, you know, even though you may have a book or a guide that. Uh, talks about the garden, it doesn't hurt to call ahead and make sure that the garden is actually going to be open uh, because it could be that there would be a special event that might be going on that day which would close the garden like, a you know, if there would be a wedding or some kind of a big party or something like that. So it's always good, I think, to call ahead even though the website might stay hours or the guide that you have might, might stay hours. And I think what you're going to actually find in the garden kind of depends on what kind of a garden it is. Some just really uh, specialize in having beautiful show gardens. So if we think about Bouchard Gardens in Canada on uh, Victoria Island, 
you know, we know that there's just, you know, large beds with large plantings of mostly annuals and showy flowers, sort of a lot of eye candy or Disneyland for the eyes. Or if we go to Longwood Garden in Pennsylvania, you know, we're also going to see some very large display gardens with lots of annuals, but we'll also see uh, more of a collection of plants that they might have, you know, perennials, maybe some meadow plantings and things like that. So a lot of it's going to just depend on what that particular garden specializes in. And one of the things I, I love about visiting a lot of these gardens um, is that you can see mature landscape plants. And too often when you go to a nursery or, Lord knows, the um, the local box store, you, know, you, you find small specimens of whatever. And people forget that they grow into large, mature things that could take over the house or the garden. Um, so is, is that something that people can take away maybe from um, one of the public gardens if they see it, what grows well uh, in your area as well as the size it's going to get? Absolutely, Kate. And I think also what you'll see is what are big companions for that. So you're interested in viburnums. You know, you go to an arboretum or a public garden that has viburnums. And then you see what other viburnums might be good companions or, you know, how it might be nice to pair the viburnum with a witch hazel or something like that so that you get multiple seasons of interest in that particular area because witch hazels bloom in winter and viburnums bloom in, in spring and summer. Uh, and so those kinds of things I think you'll are always takeaways, stuff that you can make notes on and, and leave. And that is the other thing is that, you know, you want to either do little sketches or take photos of uh, combinations that you like or take notes. That's about all you should really take from any public garden. You know, you just always want to leave everything as you find it and take notes and photos. Oh yes, and you know, and, and I know that um, places like Longwood Gardens, which is a, a very old established one, those have got very large established gardens um, and formal gardens and topiary and things like that, which the average person probably wouldn't be able to do. So, we, I mean, it's a lovely day out, but have some of them started to put in smaller areas, kind of um, things that an actual homeowner can do, kind of um, idea gardens, I believe they were called. Yes, a lot of them do have idea gardens where, again, they might introduce newer plants or plant combinations. I mean, to me, one of the best gardens in the country is in Pennsylvania, Chanticleer uh, Garden, which is always just such, it's, it's uh, subtitled Chanticleer, a pleasure garden, and it is indeed a pleasure garden because you're walking through it and you might make a turn on a pathway and all of a sudden a whole new garden opens up into you. Uh, opens up to you or you can go down this other pathway and all of a sudden you're in a woodland garden where spring is the season for a woodland garden where you'll see all the spring ephemerals and things like that. So, yes, I think that there are lots of idea gardens that are maybe just a particular part of the public gardens and the arboretums that we see, and those are take-home uh, you know, information that we can use in our own landscapes. 
And and what about children's gardens? Um, there's a lot of emphasis um, on getting kids into the garden, and I notice that a lot of the public gardens they they have cutesy. Um, gardens for kids with kind of big doors with a little door at the side of it things like that those are not exactly things that the average homeowner can can do but that that would be um maybe fun for children to to experience would that be right yes and and we'll get back to that in just a second but one thing about when we go and like you were talking about the topiaries and things like that i mean one of the things about visiting these gardens is that it is aspirational so we might look at it and we might, you know, like be a little envious of that topiary that we see there. And we might think, well, are we up for that challenge? Should we bring a topiary into our landscapes? But with the children's gardens, a lot of the public gardens, the public parks, <clears throat> and even some of the private gardens have special programs for children during summer. So they might have, you know, like junior master gardener programs or they might have other kinds of activities for kids that help them get their hands dirty and figure out where food comes from. For instance, there's this cute little garden in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, called Bookworms Garden, where all of the gardens and all of the features relate to children's stories, you know, the stories that we read to our kids when they were little or maybe even the stories that we read when we were little and some of the, and some of the characters that were in those stories. And they have programs all year long. And a lot of gardens, I know here at Garfield Park in Indianapolis, they have programs all year long for kids, little kids. I mean, like three to five, you know, little tiny babies, you know, <laughs> that sow seeds or, you know, maybe uh, make a flowering wreath or something like that, you know. So even though they're children's gardens and they're pretty to look at, a lot of them do have programs where kids can go and learn about gardening, which I think is a great asset. And I, f- I found a lot of them actually have uh, water features, um, which children always seem to enjoy in a, in a, one of the pub- public gar- gardens. It seems to attract uh, just the movement of water or or fountain type type things on a pebble base, where kids can just run and get wet. Um, there's no point in keeping them dry in the, in some of these areas. That's right, and those are, you know, just another way. I mean, the idea that. Gardens are for adults, I think, is sort of where those children's activity comes from. They're trying to make uh, visitors to, they're trying to make the gardens more family friendly so that there are activities for grown ups as well as kids. And and do do some of them actually do practical things um, maybe for the homeowner like pruning as well as kind of just being nice to look at and um, or, or you know do do they do things like pruning so you can see how how to look after a landscape? And, yeah, I think most of the public gardens have educational programs for you know homeowners, which would be just exactly what you were saying, like how to prune, when to prune what to do about lawn weeds, you know, what perennials you should consider if you have a prairie gardener, if you've got a rain garden or a rain swale. There are lots of, you know, most all of the public gardens that I know of and even some of the private gardens have educational programs attached to them, which is another way to draw people in. You know, the more familiar you are with a particular place, whether it's your church or the department store or the shopping mall, 
or the public garden. You know, the more you're going to like it, the more you're going to talk about it. And it just sort of instills, I think, a sense of loyalty to that particular area. And, and I think particularly when you go to a, a new area, um, it's nice to see um, – the different gardens. I know, know the one da- down in Tucson. Um, there's a little gar- garden there that has all the different cactus or cacti in there, um, which is a phenomenal garden, um, even though it's not maybe relevant to my own garden. Um, so I think sometimes it's, it's interesting to see um, different, different, different things growing, particularly in areas that you've never been to before. Right, where it's just a total different landscape that you have. And sometimes you'll see familiarities. I know a few years ago, my son and I were both in Los Angeles, and we went to uh, the one of the public gardens there that was attached to a museum. And we're walking along, and there were these plants that were very low to the ground, and uh, there were some other people there, and they just were asking each other what that was. Well, I looked at them, and I could tell that they were in the dogwood family, I didn't really know what species of dogwood they were, but I did know, you know, I recognized from the leaves and other aspects that they were in the dogwood family, and they're western dogwood. So, you know, even though I wasn't familiar with that particular species, there was enough that I could recognize. And it's the same way whether we're in a desert garden. So, you know, uh, succulents are still are very popular even here in the Midwest and where you are in the Northeast, where it's, you know, a challenge to have them growing outside, but they're cactuses, aloes, and agaves that we can put in our gardens or pots and get an idea of how to do that by visiting some of those western gardens. And actually, when we were down in Florida, we went to a fruit and nut garden, um, which was had all the unusual fruits that grow down there, um, like persimmons and things like that, which was great, actually, seeing and tasting uh, different gardens. But do, do most of them um, do these have people around um, that you if you said the, the Western dogwood, um, do they have people that can tell you what these things are on an, rather than during an education course, have somebody that, that you can uh, go ask, what is this? I think a lot of the answer to that depends on sort of the type of garden that, that it is. This was the Getty in L.A., and it was hadn't been open very long, so it was still pretty new. And there were some plants that were marked and some plants that weren't marked. Most botanical gardens and arboretum mark their plants. So, you know, there's either a plant marker in the ground or a tag on the tree or the shrub that tells you what that plant is. And to me, that's really important. I don't want to have to spend a lot of time trying to find somebody who can answer that. The other thing is is that there may be uh, pamphlets or little guides or maps that you can take with you that also identify, you know, maybe a planting. So you might come upon an area where there are going to be like all these eastern pines or something like that, you know, just a nice cluster of eastern pines. So you would know what that is from, the, say, a walking tour map or something like that. And, and, of course, everybody now has cell phones that can take pictures, so I guess you could take a picture and then take, take that back to the, uh, the, the entrance area where you usually do have people that, uh, that know what, what's in the garden. Um, but, you know, we need to take another quick commercial break here, but we will come back and we'll talk more about um, maybe um, how you can get involved with your local public garden. The Master Gardener Hour will be right back. 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Do your children know where their food comes from? At ConnectingFarmToFork.com, there's all kinds of ways to help your child understand how 300 million of us here in America stay nourished, clothed, and healthy. Activities, food facts, and farm visits help young people learn about America's hardworking farmers and have lots of fun doing it. Visit ConnectingFarmToFork.com today for a learning experience that will really grow on you. ConnectingFarmToFork.com, brought to you by the people who care at Feedstuff's Food Link. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. You're back listening to the Master Gardener Hour. I am the host of the show, Kate Copsey, and this morning we are talking public gardens with Joellen Mayer-Sharp. And we've talked a little about the various types of gardens, uh, Joelle. And we ended the last segment with ident- being out there in a garden and you see something um, that you don't ha- know what it is. Um, and we were talking just a little in the break about how maybe um, some of the gardens have updated um, if they don't have an actual plant tag on on them um the other ways that you can identify them yeah sometimes they'll have qr codes so you can use your smartphone and you know snap the qr the qr code and it'll tell you sometimes it'll have um the uh gps uh, gps code or numbers and so you can plug those into your uh, cell phone, and it'll tell you what that is also. And then, Kate, you know, we know that there are all kinds of garden apps out there that you can also take a picture of and then send that off, and then someone will tell you what that photo is. But if you have an opportunity to interact with the people that are at the public garden or the private garden, that's always good, uh, I think. You know, it just helps build relationships with those people and helps them explain what it is that uh, they're working on. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, most gardens, uh, the public ones particularly, they... they, they, they need, uh, shall, shall we say, volunteers um, to, to keep them going as well as funds. Um, so if you want to volunteer at a garden, um, what type of thing do volunteers generally do if, they're in, if they volunteer at a public garden? Well, there are all kinds of jobs that they can have, everything from weeding to uh, planting seasonal, so like this time of year, People might be, volunteers might be planting pansies or primroses or things like that. In summer, they could be, excuse me, taking out the spring and putting in some summer annuals. They could also help with watering. Uh, They can also serve as docents in the gardens, just like if you go to an art museum and there are docents in the art museum that can tell you about a particular collection or a particular room, what the paintings are or the sculptures are in that room. There are docents in public gardens also that do uh, the same thing. You also could do things like help stuff envelopes for a mailing 
or, you know, work in their library. They're all, you know, work uh, in maybe if they have a greenhouse or a gift shop. All of those are ways that you can volunteer. And and do they gen- generally, do the garden uh, people generally need training before they can be let loose in a, in a garden or do they work with volunteers maybe that uh, have got to um, know what they're do- doing and, and kind of take, take them in a team way um, to teach them kind of what needs to be done in a particular garden? A lot of them will have group training. So if you know you're going to be a docent in one of the gardens outdoors, you know, there might be 20 or 30 of you that attends a morning session or something like that, and you get oriented about the gardens, which might be the history of the gardens, the mission of the gardens, you know, what the role of the docents are, what you're expected to know. You might be given a binder or other kinds of printed documents that give you more detailed information about some of the plants that you're going to find in the garden or maybe the history of that particular section of a garden. So, yeah, most of the really good ones, I think, would provide some kind of training. Uh, and, and then I would hope it would be in person so that they can take you around and show you, oh, here is a collection of magnolias that we have, or here are the collection of the arborvitae that we have, or the viburnum collection, you know, to help people become more familiar and more comfortable in that setting so that they can easily answer questions from visitors. And so what about some of the things that, um, let's say, volunteers should not do, um, even though they're, they're volunteers in a, in a garden? Are there some things that they, they're not usually allowed to do? Mm, I don't know what they would be not allowed to do. I mean, I don't think there would be any <clears throat> restrictions on them over any other visitors. I mean, we know... You know, they shouldn't be walking on the beds or in the beds. You always want to stay on the path. You don't want to take seeds or snippets or plantings or anything like that uh, from the gardens that you're visiting unless there's a sign that tells you you can do that. Some gardens do allow people to snip off a dead, you know, um, spent flower for the seeds. But most gardens really don't want you to take the plants or the seeds or anything like that. You want to leave behind everything that you have there. And like we said earlier, you can take notes and photos. Yeah, and I, I know that I, I was in uh, one particular garden where where somebody snipped off some uh, hollyhock seeds, the, the white ones, and thought they were going to obviously be uh, white ones coming up. So, so I, I, how would they, um, a volunteer maybe, um, if they saw that, um, is it usually worth go, going up and, and challenging the person, or do you use it as an education point, or or what? What does a volunteer do when when they see that? Well, you know, I'm really not too sure about the answer to that. I would think that the public garden would have a policy and instruct the volunteers or the docents on what to say. But if I would see it, if I would say in this group um, and I saw one of my group members do something like that, I might say something that, you know, usually in public gardens you're not allowed to do that. You know, we need to leave everything here that we have. Yeah. Um, 
you know, just sort of that peer pressure yeah. thing. Yeah, because obviously that's something that, uh, you know, I, I, I think people forget that just because they're in a garden um, and it's a beautiful setting and there's nobody around, that you you, you like something, you can't necessarily have it. <laughs> um, you're not supposed to take the seeds or cuttings and things. Um, people forget that. Um, right, but, and a lot of times the gardens will have plant sales usually in spring, sometimes in fall. And a lot of times those gardens will have specimens of the plants that are in their garden. Uh, so, you know, they might, they might have gathered seeds already of a plant that, you know, is in their garden, or they might have taken cuttings off of a plant, or they bring in the same cultivar of the garden that they've got, of you know, of the plants that they have in their garden. So there's a way to get the plants that you like uh, without necessarily doing it in an yeah. illegal way. And, and so what about, I know a lot of, um, apart from the, the volunteering, um, a lot of gardens have membership. Um, is there a difference between membership and volunteering? Um, and are volunteers also, um, do they, are they, is that part of the membership thing? Or what is the difference between having a membership and being a volunteer? It kind of, again, goes back to the institution. Some institutions uh, have volunteers that are, only their membership. So only members of that institution are allowed to volunteer. And I, you know, can understand why someone would do that, but in my opinion, that's a little bit short-sighted. It seems like to me it would be better to have someone who's actually interested in that garden volunteering. They might not be able to afford the membership, for instance, but they could come and they're, you know, good weeders or they work really well in the retail shop. And so there are some institutions that allow non-members to be volunteers. So, for instance, at the Indianapolis Museum of Art here, which has 150 acres of gardens or, or nature, uh, the greatest number of volunteers are master gardeners. And not all of those master gardeners are members of the Indianapolis Museum of Art. And so they're still allowed to volunteer. And, and so do, does membership sometimes um, uh, differ in, in as much as um, if you're a, a member of, of something, you get special uh, treatment maybe a, a night before for the plant sale, for instance, that's for members only? That's right. Or you might be, in, you know, invited to a special event uh, like, you know, an opening of a gallery or the opening of a new garden or maybe a fundraiser, uh, and like you say, being able to go the day before or the night before a big plant sale. All of those are benefits to the gardens. And the thing about memberships is that it provides the gardens with sort of a somewhat stable income flow or revenue flow, uh, you know, whereas if you, know, you were solely dependent on how many people actually paid to get into the garden, that could fluctuate greatly. And so the idea is, you know, they have this base of members that provide sort of a steady flow of income. And I suppose if there's a charge to go into a garden, um, if, you're, if you're a member, do they usually waive that charge as part of the membership you can get in or at least X number of times by being a, a member? Yes, absolutely. That would be the reason to be a member, would be to get in free so there might be family memberships and there might be individual memberships or there might be individual and a friend memberships. It all kind of depends on the particular, you know, um, entity. 
Yeah, um, and I know I know that there are you know obviously um, different sorts of of membership. Usually, there's um, some of them are, are kind of really expensive. <laughs> um, uh, you know, it seems like for some, some um, you know, the um, you know, it's, it costs a couple of hundred sometimes to to be, become a membership. In, is there a way that you that maybe if you're a student, for instance, do they do often they give a student membership to some of these things? They do. A lot of times they'll have a student membership or they'll have a senior membership, you know, if you're older than 65. Sometimes they'll have children memberships. Uh, I haven't ever been to a garden that's that expensive. Um, I've been to some that are in like the 25 or $30 range, which, you know, seems like a lot of money, but you can go anytime. You know, the thing about a garden is there's something to see all year long. You know, you can see what the spring looks like. You can see what the winter looks like in the garden. And if you compare it to other places that you might take your family for entertainment, like a big zoo or you take them to a football game or a baseball game, I mean, you're going to lay out a few bucks to do that for one time where, you know, if you have a membership in the garden, that lasts all year. And, and of course, if you're a member of the American Horticultural Society, a lot of them will allow you to go in for free. Is that right? Yes, yes, absolutely. It's the reciprocal. They have a reciprocal admissions program, or RAP is what that's called. So, say, if you uh, belong to the Brooklyn Botanical Garden, you could also uh, be able to get into the Chicago Botanical Garden or the Denver Botanical Garden or, you know, other gardens like that as a member of the American Horticultural Society. And they put out a bullet, you know, like a pamphlet every year, and you can find those gardens that participate in that at the American Horticultural Society's website. And and so so it's fairly easy to find find out if um, if if they if it is reciprocal. If you if you're a member of that particular organization, they they produce a list of which gardens you can you can get into for free. Yes. Oh, that that's great because uh, you know that that way you you get uh, two two for one. Um, and and the, yeah, you do anywhere yeah. in the country, which is really nice. Yeah, and and it's great when you go visit in areas you can uh, you can get it in that that way as well. Um, but you know, we need to take our final commercial break here. Uh, but come back, everyone, and listen to more about American public gardens with Joellen Mayer Sharp. We will be right back. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is Michael Gano with Insight to Israel. Every day, the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory, ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school. While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. In a world of heads of state, politicians, ambassadors, diplomats, and a leftist media, many times our voice at the grassroots level is drowned out. 
So we started an ongoing project called Hershey's for Heroes. Patriot conservatives from all over the U.S. are sending Hershey's chocolate bars with a note of thanks for defending Israel. Won't you join us by sending a sweet message to the IDF? For information, please see my Facebook page at Michael Gano. Thank you, God bless Patriot conservatives, and God bless Israel in her struggle for sovereignty and security. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. you're enjoying the Master Gardener Hour this morning. We have been talking about America's public gardens um, with Joellen Mayer-Sharp um, and Joellen, uh, your book came out a few years ago um, on American public gardens um, but it's still available on Amazon and probably in some of those public gardens, is that right? Yes, it is. It came out in 2011 and as we mentioned earlier, it has more than 400 <coughs> public gardens, arboretums, private gardens, historic gardens uh, throughout the United States and uh, Canada. And there are little um, icons with each garden that tells you if it's, say, you know, its accessibility, if there's food, if it has a gift shop, if it's more of a you know, if you can go hiking, if there are children activities, if there are water events, if there are interests for winter gardeners and things like that. So, you know, it's a, it's a nice size. It fits easily in your suitcase or travel bag. And, um, you know, it's, it's available, like you say, at Amazon and some of the public gardens around. And and do you, um, I know that you're in, in Indianapolis, do you do talks on public gardens to groups in, in that area where they can maybe get a signed copy of the book? Yes, I've spoken actually at the Chicago Flower Show and at the Northwest Show as well as locally about the gardens, yes. And and what type of talk, topics apart from public gardens, do you talk on other other topics as well? Yes, I do. I talk about a lot of different things, and people can find me at my website at whosyourgardener.com, which is H-O-O-S-I-E-R-G-A-R-D-E-N-E-R.com. Sometimes I say that, and people think I'm saying W-H-O, I is your gardener, you know, like who is your gardener, but it's Hoosier Gardener, which is the nickname for Indiana. I also um, have the Indiana Gardener's Guide, which is out uh, and readily available. And I write for Indiana Gardening Magazine, and I edit for Gardening Magazines, and I write a weekly column for the Indianapolis Star. Oh, which are the magazines that you um, that you edit then? I edit uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, Iowa, and Minnesota magazines. And the, the gardening magazines published by State by State Gardening. And, and, and the, those are um, av- available to everybody within the, those particular states, is that right, the, the garden magazines? Yes, they're written by garden writers in those states, absolutely. And the, the, those are great, great magazines because they are written specifically by people within that state, aren't they, rather than so, somebody like, like me in um, New Jersey write, writing um, about a gar- gardening in, in Ohio, for instance, there, everybody yeah, is. I mean, and it, yeah, it's, it can be very timely because we're actually living what's going on 
And, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting business model because the idea of gardening being local, local, local. So that's what the magazines believe in. Yeah, and and I think that's so so important because uh, even different parts of a state, um, Indiana, for instance, has got the lake at the top, and it's almost on the Kentucky border at the bottom, and that's a big that's a big difference in in conditions, right? Yes, it is. It's also you know expands three weather zones. Uh, yeah, um, so well, it's not as uh, it's not as uh, you know broad as say California might be, uh, but it definitely has. Uh, you know, a lot of variation between the northern and the central, or among the northern, the central, and the southern parts of the state. And, and of course, we, we all get winter. Um, it, yes, particularly, we do. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Um, and I, I guess um, with, with your, your talks and things, um, do, do they go on all, all year round um, where people can, um, or do you have different talks for the public gardens and, and the Indiana month-by-month um, month type one? Yeah, some of, you know, my talks are specific, Midwest-specific, and some are broader. So, for instance, uh, I've developed one on downsizing. <clears throat> you know, as gardeners get uh, close to retirement age, a lot of times they decide they don't want to have, you know, the house with a half acre or acre and a half and want to figure out how they can downsize and still garden uh, in maybe a condominium or an apartment or zero lot line property and so I've uh, developed a program for that. And, and has that got a book attached to it as well or, or is no that just... No book attached to oh, it. Oh no. <laughs> okay. Um, and uh, you know and, and I guess with all, all the other talks listed on the website, your website um, so yes. people can find out where you're going to be next? Yeah, uh, yeah, well the talks are listed there um, and I'm also, you know, have reviews at greatgardenspeakers.com where people can find out if I'm a good speaker or not. I don't usually list where I'm going to be speaking uh, because, I, in all honesty, I worry about announcing my absence from my house. So, um, you know, I might do it a couple days out or something like that, but I don't usually put it out there very far in advance. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, and, and are most of the the talks open to the public, or are, are they for uh, restricted groups like the garden clubs and things like that? Most of mine are open to the public. And and if somebody wanted to um, invite you to talk to their uh, their group or, or garden group, how would they uh, get in touch with you to to do that? Well, they can go to my website and contact me through my website, or my email is the Hoosier Gardener at gmail dot com, which is T H E H O O S I E R G A R D E N E R at gmail dot com. Okay, and, and what about social media? Um, do you have a Facebook page? Maybe I where... am on Facebook. Hoosier Gardeners on Facebook, and also on Twitter. And and, and Pinterest. And can people? And if people are maybe on on Facebook with you, they they could ask you through that medium as well. Absolutely. And and do you, do you answer questions if they've got maybe they're in Indianapolis and they've got a sick um, whatever? Um, they can post a picture on there and um, to you and say say what is going on with this. 
Yes, a lot of people do that. I mean, I am a master gardener uh, here in Marion County, and I'm so pleased to announce that last year I completed 1,000 volunteer hours. Oh, wow. Which is pretty good. And one of the ways that I volunteer is from people who send me their gardening questions or their photographs, and I can help them figure out what's going on. And, and of course, of course you're, you're also, um, you do a regular column for the Indianapolis Star as well, right? Yes, I do, and I uh, write and ask the expert column in Indiana Gardening Magazine. And uh, and and do you, do you do? Um, let me see. There was something else that that you did. Um, oh gosh, I work at a garden center every spring. Oh, yeah, um, and and so people uh, can people find find you there just in the spring. Yes, I work there usually about six weeks. Uh, here in Indianapolis at Sullivan Hardware and Garden at 71st and Keystone. It's about a 40,000-square-foot garden center. And, and do, They're actually adding on to this year, so oh, it'll be even bigger. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, sounds like a, a perfect job. And, and do, do you do something with Angie's List as well? No, I don't write for Angie's List anymore. I also do garden coaching. So if people have, uh, you know, want me to come and visit their yard and talk about the plants in their yard. And then actually I've developed a pretty good business on doing all-season container plantings. So, you know, I can do their pots for spring, summer, fall, and winter uh, if, if they would like for me to do that. Last, last Christmas I did 30 pots. So. Oh, so 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 they they have a container out front. You look at the container and the house, and then you go off and buy plants and plant it for them. Is that right? That's exactly it. Wow, that that sounds like a great service because those big pots. Yeah, I like it a lot. I like doing it a lot. Yeah, and, and it would be optimistic to say, do you go back and water it for them? <laughs> no, I don't. I don't do any of the maintenance. Um, you know, I don't even do the maintenance on my commercial clients. I tell them what they need to do, and I do monitor it. <clears throat> I have thought about adding maintenance, but I haven't done that. So, so for all all these services, um, are they listed on on your website that you do all these different things? Yes, they are. And and so people through the website or the who's your dark, dark, the who's your garden at gmail dot com, they can reach you and and to get a quote for any of these things um, that they would like to get done. Absolutely, yes. The website there's a lot of information on the website. There's <clears throat> photos of some of the pots that I've done. There's a listing of the talks that I give and a description of them. What my fees are, what my expectations are, and you know the service that I provide to the folks who bring me in to talk. And and I guess get, getting back to the um, the, the public gar- gardens, and um, we've got about a minute left. What would you say would be the the key time of year, maybe, to go to a public garden? I wish I could say it was one time, but I'm thinking it depends on the kind of garden it is. So if it's a woodland garden. We know that the best time to visit woodland gardens is usually in the spring because spring ephemerals are there. If it's an arboretum, maybe fall would be the best time to visit because of all the colors that fall would have. But in general, most gardens are at their prime, usually uh, in the summertime. Unless, of course, you're going for camellias and things like that, as you say. Yeah, that's what I mean, unless, you know, unless there's something that's climate-specific or something like that. And and before you go, check the website to see when they're open, if they're open, and, and do some of them say what's actually in bloom on the website for that particular month? 
A lot of them do do that, yes. Yeah, um, and I say, I mean, it's, it's great to go out to public gardens and take take the kids for a run because they, they are they're big open spaces um, that I, I think are great for families. Um, and so, so th- thank you very very much, Joellen, for spending the time this morning. Um, I think I think uh, public gardens should be on everybody's agenda for at least once a year, at least. Don't you think? I agree, and Kate, uh, you're welcome, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. It's always a great time. Oh, well, thank you. Um, and ev- everyone, um, that's all we've got time for this morning. Thank you for listening to the Master Gardener Hour this morning. We'll be back next week with another show talking all about gardening and gardens. Um, have a good gardening week, everyone, and join me back here next Saturday. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.